Hello, everyone. Welcome to our podcast, Peace and Conflict. Uh, this is our first episode, and my name is Claude Gatibuke. I am a Rwandan genocide survivor. I'm also the executive director of the African Great Lakes Action Network, an organization that focuses on peace and conflict um, and justice and prosperity in the Great Lakes region of Africa, which is in Central and uh, East Africa. And uh, I'm joined with my partner and my brother, Mike Brand. Hey, everybody. I'm Mike Brand. Um, I'm a longtime human rights and atrocity prevention advocate. Currently, I'm the director of advocacy and programs at Jewish World Watch, which is an anti-genocide and atrocities prevention organization based in Southern California. Um, I've spent a decent amount of time you know, working on these issues pretty much since college, um, mostly in the Great Lakes region, Sudan, South Sudan, et cetera. Um, spent some time abroad, spent some time working for different NGOs in the States, and um, you know, we're just really excited to, you know, bring this Peace and Conflict podcast to you all. Um, you know, both of us constantly talk about these issues. You know, we're texting each other, we're calling each other, you know, we're on Facebook um, in our own, like, inner circles. Um, but we thought that we could bring, you know, the conversation about, you know, peace, conflict, justice, human rights, atrocity issues um, to the wider public. And, uh, you know, there's just so much going on in the world Every day, you know, obviously a lot of people see it in the news, but some people don't, and um, there's not always a, a conversation, you know, about these issues, and so we're hoping to, uh, to start, you know, some dialogue around these issues. And we hope that you find it both educational and inspirational. Uh, we are really wanting for it to be both. Um, we are talking about hard issues, but we also uh, really try to hone in on what you can do and try to tap into the power of the listener and the power of action because we believe that a lot of these are unnecessary conflicts and that they're very preventable. And so um, in the future, you know, you, you get to hear our voices and, you know, the conversations that we normally have one-on-one -on -one and sometimes within our networks, um, you get to hear, you know, us sharing this. And we will also um, have, you know, guests on that will bring their expertise and knowledge and Definitely. inspiration to you. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, both Claude and I, you know, with you tear down all the other labels that we have of ourselves and, you know, our backgrounds and everything, but, you know, we're advocates at heart and, and you know, we really believe in the power of people to, to change, you know, issues. And um, we definitely will be providing, you know, actions people can take and suggestions and, and ways to get involved. And, you know, I think at the end of the day, um, no matter how daunting some of these issues are that we'll be talking about and some of these, these problems, you have to remember that if, if people aren't speaking out and raising awareness and you know, advocating for action, nothing is going to get done. So it may take some time, and you, 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 know, you may get frustrated. I know I do sometimes, but at the end of the day, you know, you, you have to know that your actions um, you know, resonate. That's right. And we're going to 
Continue to push forward one step at a time, and every step in the right direction counts. Definitely. Right. Hey, Mike, um, there was a uh, hearing today on uh, South Sudan in uh, Congress, and I just wanted you to you know, share with the audience what your, the takeaways were from that um, hearing. Yeah, yeah, it was a really interesting hearing. So the hearing was at the, um, the Foreign Affairs Committee, the um, Committee for Africa um, in the House, the growing crisis in South Sudan. And, um, you know, usually when you, you see these kinds of hearings, there's a lot of uh, talk and, and rhetoric from different folks at the Congress level, but also, you know, the speakers who are testifying. Um, but interestingly enough, a number of the members of Congress were pretty frustrated um, with Ambassador Booth, who's the special envoy for Sudan and South Sudan, with his testimony. Um, and they let that frustration show pretty, you know, presently. Um, there was a few instances where the special envoy was, you know, talking about what issues the, um, you know, what areas of leverage the U.S. government has over South Sudan in the current crisis um, since, you know, violence is still ongoing, there's no, you know, peace agreement is completely shattered and it doesn't look like peace is coming anytime soon. And he kept talking about further threats of the arms embargo, of, you know, additional sanctions, and um, both Representative Meadow and Rooney really were holding his feet to the fire and, and pushing him to say, you know, why can't we do more now? Um, you know, Rooney actually... This is a great quote. You know, if we make too many idle threats that are not backed up by action, then ultimately what happens is threats become irrelevant, which I think many South Sudan watchers would argue has already happened. You know, these, you know, empty threats have been going on for years now, and with no decisive action, the leaders in South Sudan know that, you know, the international community and the U.S. government really are not going to pull the trigger. And that's so true, though, uh, because, you know, Empty threats have not stopped the civil war that's been going on for three years now. And the country's only been, it's the youngest country in the world, and it's only been a country for five years, right? And, um, you know, I just wonder, you know, how many of our listeners are actually, you know, uh, you know, know the background of how, you know, South Sudan came to be and how this conflict began um, and you know the, the whole country is affected by the civil war and there was so much hope when yeah. it became a republic in, in 2011 um, maybe you can can you give a little background on you know South Sudan the conflict itself um, and maybe we can talk about how these empty threats you know today really are not helping the situation and also some of the things that were said in the hearing today, uh, things like, you know, Mashar not being able to return or shouldn't be allowed to return uh, to South Sudan. But if you could give some background. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, obviously, you know me, I could talk about this issue for quite some time, so feel free to cut me off if I go too long. But, uh, I, you know, I think for people to understand the situation in South Sudan, you have to go back in time a little bit to understand, you know, like you said, South Sudan is the world's newest country, you know, 2011, which is not that long ago, only five years. Um, 
And it was born out of a 20-plus year war between southern Sudan and northern Sudan, basically. Um, and you had the Sudan People's Liberation Movement mainly. Um, there's a few different iterations of the rebel group but fighting against the government in Khartoum in Sudan and, you know, fighting for their rights, for their, you know, basically ability to live, um, you know, and the long history of, of the struggle and, and the fighting that was going on. But basically, if you fast forward um, in time to the mid-2000s, um, you have a comprehensive peace agreement that was agreed to between the government of Sudan and the southern Sudanese, you know, quote-unquote government, even though this wasn't really a government, I guess, representation. Um, and there was, you know, a lot of negotiations and a lot of pressure by the U.S. government under President George Bush, actually. Um, and it's funny enough, if you ever see President Salva Kiir of South Sudan, you know, usually he's wearing a black cowboy hat, which, you know, it's like a president from uh, George Bush. Um, <laughs> he's representing. Yeah, exactly. You know, he's representing Texas in uh, South Sudan. But, um, yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting because as South Sudan, you know, this peace agreement was being signed, this comprehensive peace agreement or CPA in 2005, you had in Sudan also, which is like a separate issue, but Darfur was also exploding. A lot of people know about Darfur and the same Darfur movement and everything, but not a lot of people really were focusing on the Sudan-South Sudan, Sudan um, dynamics at that time. And the main reason why Bush was really involved was he was getting a lot of pressure from the Christian right because southern Sudan and now South Sudan is a mainly Christian nation, um, whereas, you know, Sudan is mostly Muslim. And so there's a lot of American Christians that were, you know, finding out that these Christians were being attacked in southern Sudan. And so they felt like they had to really lobby the government to get involved. Um, so, yes, you have the CPA, you know, at the time, John Garang was the, the leader of the Sudan People's Liberation Movement, um, and, uh, at, you know, shortly thereafter, unfortunately, he was killed, you know, in a shady helicopter crash, and Salva Kiir, you know, took over as a leader of, of the Southern Sudanese government, and there was, you know, a period of time between 2005 and 2011 where Southern Sudan was basically semi-autonomous, they had, you know, some governance over themselves, but they still weren't independent, and part of the agreement was to, in, uh, to have basically a referendum vote for Southern Sudan to decide if they wanted to secede from Sudan. And that vote you know, was overwhelmingly in favor of secession. It was like 98% or something like that. And you know, in, in 2011, South Sudan celebrated its independence. Um, but what ended up happening was you had the international community, you know, mainly... Uh, the U.S., the U.K., and um, Norway, which, you know, are often called the Troika, uh, were backing South Sudan's independence. They were really supporting um, South Sudan, you know, to become a new country and to support them in, in, you know, building a new nation, really, you know, the epitome of what state building is when you have a brand new country. And there wasn't a lot of focus on the internal dynamics of South Sudan, unfortunately. There's a lot of focus on the North-South agreements, on, you know, making sure that the borders were, you know, outlined and everybody agreed on where the borders were, which still have not fully been decided, by the way, um, making sure that oil deals were struck between Southern Sudan and Sudan. Um, South Sudan gets 98% of its government's revenue from oil, and most of the oil fields are in Southern Sudan, but the pipeline goes through Sudan. So they have to basically, you know, agree upon oil sharing deals, which didn't work out so well. 
um, and all these other things. And honestly, in the early days of South Sudan's you know, independence, you saw slowly but surely you know, crackdowns on human rights, um, you know, violations left and right. There was, you know, Jongle, which was one of the biggest states in South Sudan, to, you know, over to the east, um, kind of had a, a major rebel movement that was operating David Yayo, which was causing chaos, and, you know, the government didn't really have control over that area, and so there was a bunch of disarmament campaigns that were going on there where there's horrific instances of the government's forces going in and raping and torturing people to get arms out of that area, um, crackdowns on journalists, you know, shooting unarmed protesters. And, you know, it was really unfortunate. The U.S. government at the time had the opportunity to really try to walk some of that back. And, you know, the focus really was just on the North-South negotiations, um, and we kind of missed the boat on some of these really big warning signs in South Sudan, you know, as to what was to yeah. come. It might um, um... I <laughs> just wonder, you know, uh, a number of things that you talked about, um, you know, from independence to civil war now. Yeah. Uh, and the role of the international community. I think all of that is important. Um, I do want to, you know, I, I wanted to share with, with the audience that, you know, both, you know, the accusations that are going back and forth. Um, yeah. between the government and, you know, the rebels. And also, the, yeah, and the switching of allegiance, you know. I mean, today they're, you know, working together. Tomorrow, you know, um, Mashar is out of the country. And today, and, and just so that everybody uh, knows, you know, Salva Kiir is the president and the guy that wears the cowboy hats. Um, and uh, Riek Mashar is the... He was the first vice president after independence. And after, you know, they fell out in 2013 and civil war broke out. Uh, Salva Kiir accused Yeg Mashar of trying to carry out a uh, coup d'etat. Yeah, well, even before that, you know, you got to mention the fact that Salva Kiir basically was getting a lot of flack from his cabinet and his inner circle of, of people within his own party saying... He was, you know, corrupt and he was insulating, you know, I think the main thing you have to mention really is the ethnicities of these two guys as well, you know, Salvatore being a Dinka, Rick Mashar being a New Air, and, and while the conflict that you're about to talk about is not fully ethnic in nature, you know, these ethnic identities have kind of fanned the flames of violence a little bit. But, um, yeah, in, in 2013... Um, in July 2013, Salvatore disbanded his entire cabinet, including his vice president, Rick Mashar. You know, and then you have December 2013, so, which you were about to say. Yep, that's, that, that's right. And um, it, it seems, you know, it started out with, you know, the two major ethnic groups, you know, kind of being on, you know, the two ends of the, you know, the, the, the civil war. But now, you know, it has really spread across all over you know, the whole country. Um, and I, if I recall correctly, uh, and, you know, keep me honest here, Mike, but there was a previous talk of impunity for both Salva Kiir and Riek Mashar. Uh, I think they both, uh, I believe it was uh, a New York Times article that talked about, 
and I, I believe it may have been in opaid by uh, Selva Kier that basically hinted at, or and, and not so secretly at, you know, giving both him and Mashar amnesty or um, impunity, you know, in order yeah. to end the conflict. Yeah, that um, was a, a, a controversial, you know, op-ed because, you know, I guess originally when it was printed, they said that Kier and Mashar, you know, this is, you know, we're jumping around a little bit. This is, you know, pretty recent after Kier and Mashar had this, like, multi-year civil war that killed, you know, 50,000-plus people or more. You know, the estimates go from 50,000 to 300,000. Displaced 2.5 million, has made 5-point-something million people at risk of severe food insecurity and, and even famine. Um, and after all of that, August 2015, they have a peace agreement. The peace agreement, you know, takes a while for anything to really be implemented, but eventually Kier and Mashar come back together, you know, the, the former president and vice president who just fought a brutal civil war are now back as president and first vice president. Um, and shortly thereafter, there's this New York Times kind of, you know, op-ed that says it was issued by or authored by Kier and Mashar um, saying that, yeah, that, you know, they don't need justice in South Sudan. They need, you know, to just move on and have reconciliation. And, you know, justice isn't going to help with reconciliation. And then shortly after that was, you know, published, Mashar's camp was like, no, we didn't write that. Like, of course we need justice. It's ridiculous. So it was a whole to-do with New York Times having to print, like, you know, an apology kind of thing, saying they should have, you know, checked their sources a little bit better. But um, that was a really good example of how these two guys clearly are not on the same page. And then, you know, shortly thereafter, I don't know, it was like a month later, you know, when South Sudan was celebrating its fifth, anniversary, July just this year, just, you know, a couple of months ago, um, violence broke out again and caused um, Rick Machar to flee again. And some people were speculating that, you know, the, the government was trying to assassinate Machar and just get him out of the picture. So he supposedly he ended up fleeing out of South Sudan into DR Congo. And then from DR Congo, MINUSCO, the UN force there helped him, you know, get out. And now he's in... Um, in Sudan. That's very interesting too, because um, going back even before um, you know South Sudan was a country, an independent country, um, and going back to the years of um, you know civil war, the twenty-five years you know civil war that you know also was kind of an extension of a previous long war, you know, right at independence. That was also, I think it was like a 20-year war. Um, I remember there was, you know, I mean, even with um, Bashir, the president of Sudan, who is wanted for genocide, him and his allies would fall out or, you know, some of his, you know, top henchmen like um, um, Hassan Tarabi. And, and people like that. Mm -hmm. And now um, it seems to be, you know, South Sudan is caught that kind of fever. You know, they fall out, they come together, they fall out again. And now, you know, Mashar is over in Sudan, and this is a state that, you know, whose troops have committed genocide in um, Darfur. Uh, and I'm not sure, um, you know, the, in the hearing um, today, um, 
it was say that um, Mashar should not return to South Sudan. Is that right? Did I get that right? Yeah, um, and, it was kind of surprising. Ambassador Booth, he's the special envoy um, for Sudan and South Sudan, yeah, he flat out said that, you know, he didn't think that it was wise or something like that for Mashar to return to his previous role in Juba because it could cause um, more conflict. But, you know, this peace agreement that was negotiated back in August had Kieran Mashar, like they were the two co-signers of this agreement. That's, they were supposed to start this transitional government and national unity together. And you know, now it seems like, well, at least, I don't want to say the whole U.S. government, but at least, you know, the top um, diplomat for Sudan and South Sudan from the U.S. government is flat out saying that uh, Mashar should just stay out of this, which is kind of crazy. You know, there's been a lot of talk about, you know, the peace agreement and sovereignty and who's in charge, et cetera. And, you know, honestly, you know, my opinion is there's never going to be peace with Mashar or Kier in power. But I don't think sidelining Mashar at this time is a wise policy either. Um, and especially, like you said, you know, with the history that, um, you know, these guys have of, of kind of switching sides, you know, it, during the, the independence struggle that South Sudan was, was, you know, going through for the 20 years, you know, Kieran Mashar were on, you know, the same side for a lot of the time, fighting against Khartoum, and then sometimes Mashar and the and the New Air and the White Army and others um, would kind of break away and go on their own and, and actually side with Bashir. And there's a you know a history of interethnic fighting with you know the Dinka and the New Air with the the 1991 Boer massacre. Um, and you have all these different examples of Mashar already kind of playing both sides. There's some you know reporting that throughout the civil war in South Sudan, Mashar's forces, the you know, Sudan People's Liberation Movement in opposition, was getting support from Sudan, you know, in by, you know, arms and, you know, resupplies and things like that. So, you know, putting him in Sudan and flat out telling him, Yeah, I know you're not welcome back, you know, I think that's just as a recipe for disaster for um, you know, causing spoilers for this peace agreement. Or I, I think so too. I think so too. I mean, to me, it sounds like the peace agreement goes right out of the window if Mashar is kept out of the country. And uh, it's I mean, to one me, big area is that it was always kind of out the window, but this is like even further, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's basically pouring gasoline on a burning fire. Yeah, to me, because. Um, Without bringing the two parties together, uh, again, I don't personally trust that either one of them is capable of bringing peace or, you know, um, stabilizing southern Sudan, um, South Sudan. The only... They may be able to do it uh, if they're able to dictate the whole country, but that isn't the best way. I mean, neither... None of us, I, I don't believe you would either be happy to live in a dictator, and that is not what, you know, um, I don't think it's a policy that the U.S. government, you know, should support in terms of, you know, going forward for South Sudan, because to me it just sounds like if you leave one part of the country, the, the conflict out of the country, which, of course, Mashar is, 
it's one person, but he's kind of an institution in Sudan with the mm-hmm. following that he has. Um, it's it's either a recipe for more conflict or a recipe for dictatorship, which neither one is good, especially in a country where you know hundreds of thousands of people have been killed in various con- uh, conflicts. Uh, it's it's just really easy for people to resort back to violence if you have just those two alternatives. Yeah, I mean, I think kind of letting Kier and his inner circle, you know, push Mashar out and then the U.S. government supporting that in some way, shape, or form, you know, it almost emboldens Kier to further, you know, his just, you know, strengthening his position that, he's never going to step down from power, you know, and you're basically giving him carte blanche to do whatever he wants. You know, what, what would have happened if Mashar was assassinated instead? You know, would we, would Ambassador Boots get up there and be like, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's a terrible thing, but, you know, now that, you know, maybe we can move forward ahead with the peace agreement, you know, forge ahead with bringing peace. You know, and that's, it's, this is a problem that's, you know, much larger than just South Sudan. I feel like, you know, when you look at any, conflict situation like this, you know, especially where mass atrocities and, you know, genocide are involved, um, you know, we always look to ending the violence and we, you know, there's like the, the idea of a negative peace, like the absence of violence, but we don't always talk about, you know, the, the social justice and the positive peace of having a, a country that has human rights and the respect for human rights and the support and a network and governance, um, that's for the people, um, you know, like our, our podcast, like Peace and Conflict, like, you know, I think this is the heart of the, the, the issue where we always try to negotiate out these negative peace um, agreements that just break up the conflict in the short term and have no thought for the long-term consequences, have no thought for is there going to be a return to violence? You know, is there going to be of the government, like, are we helping to prop up a government that's going to respect the human rights of its people? Um, and, you know, this current path, I mean, this, this whole, the whole time, you know, I feel like has been a flawed effort. Um, but especially yeah, that's, now. That's what we have all over Central Africa. Yeah. And actually, you know, you know, Eastern, you know, the Horn of Africa, all the way across from, you know, Djibouti to Eritrea to Ethiopia and then come west to Sudan and South Sudan and Central African Republic, Chad, you know, uh, Democratic Republic of Congo, Rwanda, Burundi, and then all the way across to the Congo and Gabon and Cameroon. I mean, it's the whole belt is kind of, uh, we've got these policies of the absence of war is, you know, good enough. And obviously the people of the region do not agree with that, right. that's why there's, you know, these continued uh, conflicts. Yeah, because, you know, there's never, you know, any reconciliation. There's never any justice. And, you know, it's, it's the absence of war, but, you know, they should always add the caveat of for now. You know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a short-term game, and they're not thinking the long-term preventative, you know, mindset of how can we do everything that we can to prevent you know, further loss of life, and then also prevent violent conflict from breaking out again in the future. You know, and, and that was, I think, you know, going back to the independence of South Sudan, there was no thought put into 
like early on security sector reform, disarmament, demobilization, and reintegration of former you know soldiers. I mean, South Sudan is awash with weapons. You know, this is a a region of a country that was, like I said, involved in a 20-plus year civil war, um, and you know they, they didn't. There wasn't a lot of focus on the cattle raiding, and that was an inter-ethnic, you know, cattle raiding that would happen, and it was a you know, rites of passage for the young men. The young, you know, women would sing songs about the cattle raiding and, and push the men to do this. And you know, over the years, as weapons became easier and easier to get, violence between these groups. You know, that started with small-scale violence. All of a sudden, everybody had an AK-47 and an RPG. And it's, it went from stealing some cattle and hurting a few people to destroying whole villages. And there's, like, there's a lot of tension there that was never resolved. And you could see that tension exploding, you know, in the early days of the conflict in 2013 when, you know, in, in Juba, you had people going door to door, you know, the South Sudanese army going door to door, killing newer men, rounding them up in prison, you know, cells and others, and just shooting at them through the windows. And then folks, you know, in, in Malakal and Lear and other places, you know, attacking schools and churches and, you know, direct attacks against civilian populations because some of these deep-seated issues were never resolved, and there wasn't a lot of focus on that either. Yep. You know, um, you're never going to have peace unless that is addressed. So let's, um, I think that's a good way to get into, you know, one of the things that I think is both your favorite and my favorite thing to do is, um, you know, given the hearing today yeah, and the prior U.S. policy that, you know, we both just basically say it is, you know, not good enough in terms of ending, you know, this conflict. Um, and, of course, I mean, the people on the ground will have to do their part, but also on the international side, we've got to do our part, right? Just like a lot of, you know, previous movements, there was a lot of uh, Americans involved in the entire apartheid, you know, fight. There was, you yeah. know, you referred to the Save Darfur um movement and in many other you know movements that american citizens get involved in ordinary people um i just wanted to you know share with the audience some of the things that they can do to challenge you know the u.s government to make sure that you know we don't do business as usual and that the policies today uh, and also, especially, you know, this talk of keeping Mashar out, you know, uh, which endangers, you know, southern Sudan even more in terms of, you know, if it was to actually be implemented. Um, we are powerful, right? Um, Definitely. Ordinary citizens are powerful people and can do something about you know, what the U.S. government does in these foreign conflicts if we are engaged. And that's one of the reasons why we're doing this, so that we can share with the people, you know, how they can support and, and, and see how, you know, how are we involved as a country and what are we doing and what can we do better? Um, would you, or, or and, you know, given your advocacy and, 
you know, some of the work in, in, in your leadership, in your organization, uh, what do you, what would you recommend or what would you ask the listeners to do yeah. and share with their friends? You know, I, it's, it's, uh, it's frustrating to see how far this conflict has gotten. And, you know, uh, unfortunately, I feel like, you know, I, I mean, I said it before that I, I don't have a lot of confidence that either Kira or Mashar are ever going to bring peace to their country. And, you know, the, the situation that we're in right now, our, you know, the international community doesn't have the ability to kind of, you know, remove these guys from power. You know, if you look at the situation, like you said before, al-Bashir, a wanted, you know, genocidaire war criminal by the International Criminal Court still in power. You know, Bashar al-Assad in Syria, you know, can drop chemical weapons on his citizens and, you know, still in power. Um, so short of that, you know, short of what, you know, I've talked about before and then what, you know, former Ambassador Lyman have talked about before and, um, you know, making South Sudan a kind of protectorate or something, which, you know, may be the worst um, option. I think, you know, we need to focus on what can be done within, you know, the confines of what's available. And, you know, right now there's a few options, right? You know, something that was talked about at this hearing again and again was the threat of an arms embargo and the threat of sanctions. And that's, a, that's something that the U.S. government 100% should be doing and leading on, is imposing arms embargo on South Sudan, imposing further economic uh, sanctions against individuals, you know, targeted sanctions, not sanctions against the whole country, um, and really crank up the pressure on some of these leaders to, you know, right themselves almost, you know, and, and, and know that these, these actions won't go, um, you know, unchecked. If you cut off some of the arms to South Sudan, both, you know, the South Sudanese government and the, the rebel forces, and you get the regional powers involved as well, that would really change the calculus of the conflict. Um, uh, I think, you know, with this new UN force, um, you know, there's been a, a pretty strong, um, at least in numbers, um, UN force on this in South Sudan, you know, since independence, but the UN Security Council just issued a, a new resolution that they're hoping to add 4,000 new troops um, to that peacekeeping mission. And those troops are supposed to have a stronger mandate where they can kind of go out and protect civilians more, which is obviously extremely necessary. Um, but, you know, we, we need to be advocating for the, you know, making sure that these troops have a clear mandate, they have a clear, you know, rules of engagement so that they get in there and they know what they're doing and they have the tools and the support to accomplish their mission of protecting civilians as best as they can. And, um, you know, if, if that coupled with an arms embargo, coupled with some sanctions and coupled with some real strong diplomacy, um, we may be able to move, you know, South Sudan a little bit closer um, to peace. But, you know, you can't just do one of those things, right? Like, I think all of those things need to happen at the same time. And given the U.S.'s, you know, position of power in the world and also, you know, in, in, the, in the region and our support for South Sudan um, over the years, the U.S. definitely has a role to play. Um, you know, I think a lot of people are like, oh, you know, why, you know, why does the U.S. care about South Sudan? Like, we've poured millions upon millions, like hundreds of millions of dollars into South Sudan in development and aid, especially aid, over the last few years. Um, you know, just recently, 
the State Department announced, you know, in August, an extra, another $138 million in humanitarian assistance. You know, this is big money that could be going to helping the world's newest nation get on its feet and develop and have infrastructure and, and develop jobs and, you know, put kids in school. And instead, you know, we're spending all this money on keeping people fed and, you know, giving them basic health care because this violent conflict won't end. Yeah. So I think um, it, you hit all these points and um, they're important. So for the ordinary people like us that are listening, um, number one, we are connected to this conflict uh, in so many ways. One is the fact that the U.S. is a donor nation, as Mike mentioned, and two, uh, we also are recipient of refugees from um, this conflict. And so um, if nothing else, we're connected that way. Uh, on the third level, probably some of what we consume uh, in terms of uh, products, some of them come from Sudan. Um, Sudan is a big um, oil producer, and the U.S. is one of the top consumers of oil, obviously. Um, now, for simple steps to take, um, to just, um, you know, for anybody that's new, we just ask that you don't be shy. You know, take action, because as it has been said, the only thing required for evil to triumph is for good people to stand by and watch. Yep. And um, if you I think would... the simplest thing that people can do right now is just try to raise some noise on, you know, the arms embargo and the sanctions. You know, right. simple things like tweeting. You know, tweet to Secretary Kerry. Tweet to Ambassador Power at the United Nations. You know, tweet to President Obama. Write letters. Um, I think the more noise that's made on this issue, you know, also reach out to your member of Congress and your senator. But, you know, the more noise that's made on this issue, um, hopefully, you know, eventually it'll catch up with some action. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's, it's really amazing. You talk to a number of members of Congress and, you know, even folks at the State Department, and, you know, if their office gets enough tweets or enough letters on an issue, they, you know, it gets to the congressperson. It gets to Secretary Kerry. So, you know, yep. people shouldn't just uh, brush that off as slacktivism. You know, that, that, that kind of engagement works if there's, you know, the power of numbers. I totally agree. Um, use the tools at your fingertips. You don't need to do anything extraordinary. Tweeting, you can do that from your phone. You can do that from your computer. You know, email, phone calls, all the things that are right, you know, a foot or less away from you that you can actually do, and they'll make a difference because um, arms embargo and sanctions actually do work. Mm -hmm. um, I know that a lot of Americans are skeptical given, you know, what happened with the sanctions in um, Cuba, but they actually do work, you know, and uh, I think it's important that we take action. So um, that's, that's all I wanted to do is just encourage our audience and everyone that, you know, gets to hear this or hear, hear from someone else to Definitely. take action on the arms embargo and on the sanctions on the major players in the conflict. Yep. And, and the major players include uh, both 
sides of the conflict, the Salvakir government as well as the rebels who are with uh, Riek Mashar. Yeah. You know, if you have, you know, questions, you're not sure who you should reach out to, what you should tweet, whatever, you know, I, I can at least be reached on Twitter pretty easily, you know, at Mike the Idealist. Um, you know, get at me that way. You can also tweet us uh, at, at Aglan, G-L-R, and that is at A-G-L-A-N-G-L-R, and we can um, help, you know, get, get you connected or directed in the right direction. Hey, Mike, it's been a pleasure. Uh, yeah, man. I don't know if you um, have anything that you would like to share with the audience, but, you know, it's always a pleasure talking to you. And, you uh, too, man. It's, yeah. You know, we talk about to, these uh, things. Yeah, I look forward to our next conversation. You know, yep. Hopefully, uh, you know, I'm sure the next time we'll be talking about something different, but maybe we can provide a little update on South Sudan as well. That's right. Thank All you right, so much, well, Mike. Thanks, everybody. Yep. Thanks, Claude.